Welcome to Mind and Soul Matters. We're excited to share with you another live forum presentation. It is part of a series of live talks organized in collaboration between Mind and Soul Matters and Melville Baha'i Community to discuss issues around mental health in our society. Today's episode is the first in a series of three on exploring social justice. I will leave the introduction of our presenter to Dr. Dina Ashurian, MC of the Forum. The content of today's episode is primarily in relation to the challenges faced within the criminal justice system in Western Australia. A thought-provoking presentation and no doubt many of the challenges and responses highlighted are relevant to other parts of the world. Okay, good afternoon. My name is Dina Ashurian and I'll be your MC for this afternoon. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting today, the Wajak Noongar people and their families, and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and sky. We pay our respects to the elders, both past, present, and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge the Melville Baha'i community for hosting today's event and the Baha'i Center of Learning for offering the venue for today's program. Today is the fifth in a series of mental health and well-being forums where we will explore relevant topics with the help of expert panel members. Baha'i communities all over the world are working to engage in social discourses on topics that are impacting our communities and the society at large. Today's forum has a focus on social justice and its impact on mental health. You might have heard the phrase social determinants of health. It's the idea that social factors such as poverty, access to education, where you live, and whether you face discrimination have a huge influence on your health, whether it's physical health or mental health. These determinants explain why worse health outcomes persist for some groups of people, despite incredible advances in medical care. This understanding has somewhat helped improve health policy in Australia and overseas. However, we still have a long way to go. These social determinants can also impact one's life trajectory in relation to more serious mental health conditions, such as addictions and suicide and possibly criminal activities. Our first panelist will be Mr. Bayan Meshkin. Bayan has worked exclusively as a criminal defense lawyer for the past 15 years. During that time, he's had the opportunity to represent many clients with mental health problems. He is currently employed at the WA Legal Aid Commission. He has been involved in various grassroots community building efforts and is eager to engage and to learn with those who are involved in efforts directed towards social transformation. I'd like to invite Bayon to the lectern now. Thank you, everyone. I should probably commence my brief remarks today by noting that I am not, certainly not, an expert in the area of mental health. Having said that, as a lawyer who's been working exclusively in criminal defense for a number of years, 
I've represented countless individuals with mental health problems of one kind or another. In doing so, I've been able to witness firsthand their encounter with the criminal justice system and some of the challenges that they have faced. My hope is that by sharing some personal thoughts based on this experience, that I can contribute to the discourse relating to mental health that is emerging in spaces like this. Now, as many of you might be aware, the general theme of mental health and social justice can cover a wide range of issues. There are so many different topics that fall under that umbrella and deserve real attention that it's impossible to cover all of them. Instead, I intend to focus on a few broad areas of concern that might give you an idea of some of the issues that arise when the legal system is dealing with an accused person that is mentally ill. Now, when looking at the way the justice system deals with mental health issues, it's important to bear in mind how much we have learned over the last few decades about the topic of mental health. We now appreciate that mental health is just as important as physical health. In fact, we know that the two are closely related. We are much better equipped to identify mental illness and to understand how it can impact a person's life and how hard it might be to overcome. With all of this progress in mind, it's perhaps not surprising that the law is also much more aware of mental health, much more than it has been in years past. The courts now recognize that where mental illness contributes to a person's offending, it has to be taken into account, at least at the point of imposing a penalty on someone. There are even some efforts in the form of specialist courts where people who are charged with offenses are encouraged to link in with some supports that are available prior to their sentencing. And the hope is that they can engage with those services and benefit from them. But despite all of these gains, people with mental illness still face some particular challenges when participating in the criminal justice system. One doesn't have to look very hard to identify these challenges because there's strong evidence to suggest that people with mental illness are grossly overrepresented in the criminal justice system. While it's difficult to identify the exact numbers involved, we're able to draw some conclusions based on the research that's been conducted over the prisons. The prison population has been the subject of many studies and those studies suggest that somewhere between 40 and 50% of the entire prison population has some sort of mental health disorder of one kind or another. That means that almost every second person in jail at this time is dealing with a mental health problem of some kind. Now, obviously, mental health disorders can cover a range of conditions. In prison, it's very common to experience or to deal with people who are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, severe depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. All of these conditions are common in the prison setting. Some of the prisoners are dealing quite well with their condition. They may be medicated, they may have some arrangements in place. Others are completely unsupported. 
But the reality is that we can tell that there is a substantial segment of the prison population, almost half, that suffers from real diagnosed mental health or cognitive impairments. When it comes to juvenile offenders, there's much more research that's available. And the results of that research are startling. That research suggests that up to 90% of young people who are held in detention are suffering from some mental illness or cognitive impairment of some kind. What's even more concerning is that the overwhelming majority of these children were not in receipt of a diagnosis before they were detained. That means either the court was not aware that they were suffering from that condition or was aware but was precluded by law from taking it into account. So once we understand that there is a gross overrepresentation of people who suffer from mental illness in the prison sitting, then we have to ask ourselves, how does the justice system respond to this reality? How does it cope? Now, early on, there's a recognition that it was important that prisons would not function as cheap hospitals. They shouldn't be places where we just send poor people to get the treatment that they need. It was recognized that prisoners who need acute care in terms of their mental health would need to be transferred to a hospital, and there they could receive the assistance that they required. So in response, the government here in Western Australia opened its first secure forensic mental health facility in 1993. That facility is called the Franklin Center. So if a prisoner is in need of acute care and they're unwilling or unable to receive it, they have to be sent to the Franklin Center and treated there. Now, bear in mind again that up to half of the prison population has some mental health disorder of some kind. One in every 10 prisoners has a diagnosed psychiatric condition. And one would expect that given the sheer numbers involved, that there would be an infrastructure to support people who are in that setting. So take a guess how many beds are available in the state's secured ward at the Franklin Center. 30. That's the same number of beds that were available when that institution was opened or when that facility was opened 30 years ago. Not a single bed has been added to that facility. Now, you think that situation is bad, it's worse than you could imagine. Because 26 of those 30 beds are taken up by prisoners who will be there in the long term. They will not likely improve their condition and those beds will not be available. So in practice, in a state of 2.6 million people, there were somewhere between two and four beds available at any time for the prison system to refer people with mental health problems. Two to four beds for the entire prison population. That's not taking into account that since the, the opening of the Franklin Center, the prison population has tripled. The numbers are increasing, and yet the infrastructure is not in place to support them. So, what does that look like in practice? What it means is that if you're a prisoner who's extremely unwell and you're unwilling to receive treatment or unable to receive treatment, perhaps because you have no insight into your condition, because your condition is so bad, 
then you are likely not to get any treatment at all. Prison doctors are placed in a ridiculous situation where they have to decide whether a prisoner's condition is so bad that it warrants kicking someone else out of the Franklin Center before they can get treatment. So it's a macabre version of musical chairs, and the only people left standing are those who are acutely unwell. Often the decisions about who goes to the Franklin Center turn on risk and danger. So if a person poses a danger to someone in the prison, another detainee, they're getting into fights, or they pose a risk to the prison staff, then they'll be referred to the Franklin Center where they can get some treatment. But if you're a prisoner and you suffer from acute delusions, your thinking is entirely disordered, but you're too scared to leave your cell, then you won't be getting any treatment and there is nowhere that they will send you. And then to make matters worse, when that person comes to be sentenced, they will be dealt with on the basis that they pose a greater risk to the community because they have untreated mental health conditions and they will then receive a higher penalty. Now, that's before you even get to the question of prison overcrowding. Because in an increasingly punitive environment where we ask for tougher and tougher penalties for one offense or another, the situation is that we have larger and larger numbers of people in custody. But there's not enough prison to hold them. We're already at a stage where the prisons are operating at well over 50% in excess of their capacity. Prisoners are double bunking and triple bunking in order to fit into these places. So staying in those conditions, they're living in conditions that are completely unacceptable. They fall well short of international standards, and indeed they fall short of our own national standards in terms of care and treatment. Now, one of the consequences of this overcrowding is that people are getting less treatment and support in prison. There are fewer courses available, there's less access to doctors and medical care. And imagine what happens when you put a large number of mentally ill people into an overcrowded place where people are stressed and they're not receiving the treatment that they need. The results are predictable. So when you look at these issues, it becomes abundantly clear that the system simply does not have the resources that it requires to fulfill even its base functions. And unfortunately, there's no will to change the situation. It's often much more difficult for a politician to argue that criminals need support and treatment than it is to say we need to be tough on crime. So as a result, it's politically unpalatable to try and address these issues. What's most frustrating is that despite the complete inadequacy of resources in the system, the law often proceeds in blissful ignorance of the fact. And indeed, the laws are designed on the assumption that there are unlimited resources available. And now this can have terrible consequences. One clear example of this uh, is the way that the system deals with people who are found not guilty of offenses based on their unsoundness of mind. The law indicates that a person who's found not guilty of an offense on the basis that they were of unsound mind is not simply to be released into the community. 
Instead, the court has to determine whether a person can be released or alternatively should be made the subject of what's called a custody order. Now, a custody order is basically an order that a person be held at an authorized facility until it is deemed safe for them to be released into the community. Now, that might sound entirely fair. We don't want people who are insane being released into the community if they pose a risk to the public. But there's a problem. Say you get a custody order, which authorized facility do they send you to? You guessed it, the Franklin Center. But there's a recognition that that facility doesn't have the beds that are required. So what do we do? Do we say, well, let's open up a wing of a hospital and put them in there, or let's create a new facility? No. It's much easier to take your pen and designate prison as an authorized place. So what that means is that people are found not guilty of offenses and then end up in prison, where they're supposed to stay until they can get better enough to be released. Now, the problem is that when you have a person with a mental illness who's in prison, they're unlikely to get better there. Their condition, in fact, is likely to worsen rather than improve. And that means they simply won't be released. So you have a situation where people are spending years and years and years in prison for offenses that they are not guilty of. In fact, in many cases, people spend more time in custody than if they had pleaded guilty to the offense and been dealt with under law. So people who have a possible defense of unsoundness of mind are faced with this question. Do I defend the charge and risk having a custody order made? Or do I simply plead guilty so I can get a finite sentence? And overwhelmingly, people plead guilty to the charges because they don't want to take the risk. So most people, I think, would acknowledge that that situation is completely unacceptable. The question is, how do we respond? And in looking at these challenges and other challenges that arise within the system, it's tempting to focus on each individual problem as it arises. We can say, well, there's a shortfall of resources. Let's try to correct that by injecting money into the system. Or we can say there's a problem with this law. We should change that law and make it better. Or we should encourage people who are offending to, to access the supports that are available. While all these steps are necessary and appropriate, I suggest that they might not give us the outcomes that we hope for. Because focusing on the problems with the justice system is like investing all our time and energy in addressing a symptom while ignoring the underlying cause of the problem. If you look at the broader trends, the number of mentally ill people coming before the court is increasing dramatically. It has been increasing for a number of years. So even if we had a massive injection of resources, we would still be playing catch up. The other problem is that focusing on the justice system tends to individualize responsibility. What it says is that an individual bears all of the responsibility to access the services that are available and make better choices. Now, certainly individual responsibility plays an important role, but by the time a person who's mentally ill starts offending, there's any number of other factors that have contributed to that outcome along the way. Some of those factors are individual, poor decision-making, 
unwillingness or lack of capacity to access supports, but there are also broader social factors, significant childhood trauma, a lack of education, absence of supports, economic factors like the availability of employment or accommodation, a sense of hopelessness. These factors play a significant role in getting people to the point where they're making decisions, including decisions relating to offending. Those factors, they have no control over. But the system does not take that into account. The system ignores that possibility. What we say is, no, you need to make better choices. That'll fix it. So the reality is, until all of us start looking at our collective obligations, not only to the people in our own lives, but people who are having a difficult time of it, and start looking and changing the dynamics associated with mental health, it's likely that we are unwilling or unlikely to see the changes that we hope to see. And the situation is likely to get worse before it gets any better. Thank you. We could all agree that the criminal justice system and a socially just society would look very different from the current system that we have. The social problems of our society that are leading to addictions and crimes could be healed by strengthening our community-based activities and through restorative justice that gives people who commit crimes meaningful opportunities to make amends. Make sure to tune in next week to the second presentation of the series on exploring social justice, where you will be inspired through Peter's heartfelt story of overcoming severe personal circumstances and an imperfect judicial system, transforming himself, establishing an organisation which now helps hundreds of others. Look forward to your company then. Thank you.